Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Welcome, welcome, welcome one and all. In case you haven't uh, listened to us before, this is John Tallarico. And even if you have listened to us before, we always forget to do this anyway. This is Rich Wilgus. Together we are... The Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. And I did it again. We're really <laughs> just Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. Yeah, no uh, no the. Sometimes we just add it by accident. <laughs> Sometimes we call ourselves Bloody Veggies. Or other people do anyway. Yeah. So what's going on out there in the world, man? Yeah, I mentioned to the, uh, mentioned this to you uh, before the show and, and recently a couple of times. Uh, there's a uh, an issue going on in, in Syracuse. I'm not sure if it hit national news yet. Sometimes these things do. Um, a state trooper was killed. Actually, he was killed uh, during a, a high-speed chase. Um, apparently, the circumstances where a motorcycle flew by him doing roughly 100 miles an hour. I think that's, by all accounts, that's true. And um, he got in his uh, SUV. As the state troopers usually do, they've got those giant, gigantic, yeah. honking, gas-guzzling vehicles. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure they've got some utility, you know, in police work. I'm not sure how, but that's something I want to investigate. Uh, but he got into his SUV and uh, went off on a chase. And within, and, and again, this is something that is part of the report. Within um, two minutes, he had crashed, hit a tree, and was killed during the chase. Tragic, definitely. Yeah, and it, it's an awful, awful situation. I want to preface anything I'm saying about this that with um, this is an awful situation because the guy was 25 years old, apparently um, just married and has a uh, a baby on the way. The, the baby it wasn't even born. Um, the wife is due this month or next month, so it's going to be a child that grows up without knowing the father. And I'm going to interrupt you right now to ask the question, why is it worse if they were young? I think it's tragic when anybody dies regardless of circumstances. And I would say it's equally as tragic, you know? Well, I'm, I'm, to me, it's a, it's a tragic situation because if you're a young person, there's a lot of potential. You know, there's, there's a, a life that was cut short that was never lived. And anytime a life is lived to, you know, its fullest extent, that's, that's, I think the way it should be. But we have no idea how long he would have lived otherwise or what his life would have been. So all I'm saying is that I think it's just equally tragic, you know, when, when a person dies, regardless of their, their profession or uh, at, at what age they died. But anyway, that's just always been one of those little picayune pet peeves of mine. Yeah. And it's completely invalid. So, <laughs> well, geez, thanks. <laughs> no, I, the, the way I feel is that, if this person was going to be living a normal life, a normal, you know, healthy life, um, the statistically, yeah, it the, can the, be life, the lifespan was going to be in the 70, 80 year range. He probably would have lived that long. Then again, he was a policeman. It's a dangerous job. Obviously. It, apparently. Yeah. Well, it's a dangerous job. Um, and, you know, not only could he, been hit, could he have been killed, I mean, there could have been injuries. Uh, you don't know. So... Anyways, to me, it's a tragic thing, especially because it's well, a it's, it's a, a child. tragic thing to me too, Mister. I'm I'm saying it, it, more and more circumstances surrounding this are tragic because it's a child that is going to grow up with the father being killed, not having the father around. Um, 
So anyways, and, and the wife lost the husband. It's not just a single guy, and it's a tragic situation on its own where it's a single guy. It's a family that's been shattered. That's, that's all I'm saying. in almost any case, there's other people involved who Stop are Stop arguing with me! <laughs> there are other people who are going to miss the person who died, so it's tragic for them, too. Okay, on, on your scale, it's a tragic level 10. On my scale, it's a tragic level 11. It's tragic, okay? <laughs> that's not the point of the story. The point of the story for me was... He was killed chasing this person, and the, the community is outraged, essentially. They're outraged because he was killed, this, this life was cut short, and because it was, he was chasing someone who was breaking the law, okay? Well, the person was caught, or Andhord turned himself in. I mean, to me, I'm not sure about that. It may have been one of those things where um, someone finally caught up with him, and he decided to turn himself in to, to make it easier on, on himself. Um, a 20-year-old guy who, by all accounts, is not necessarily the best guy in the world because he was driving without a license and um, was on parole and apparently didn't want to get caught by any police. So that's one of the reasons why he was driving Hellaciously fast. fast. Yeah. I mean, 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle is you're waiting to get killed or someone's going to get killed, obviously. Um, but here's the thing that, that I'm a little bit concerned about is that his his burial, I mean, the, the officer's burial, his funeral was uh, on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. He died on Sunday. And what happened was, right after that, emotions are high. The guy turns himself in on Friday, and they're charging him with two counts. One is, I believe, aggravated vehicular homicide. Ag- I'm sorry, aggra- aggravated vehicular manslaughter and aggravated vehicular homicide. I think he's getting two counts. Now, I'm not sure if it's because of the emotions surrounding the case, because if it's a police officer, or if it's because, you know, the the details of the case warrant that kind of charge. But to me, it seems like if this person was driving 100 miles an hour, by the time the, the police officer got in the vehicle or was in the vehicle and pulled away, this person might not even have known that the, the guy was chasing him. Someone dies behind him. To me, it's, it seems like the charge is a little excessive. Well, and in addition to the fact that I always imagined that vehicular homicide, vehicular manslaughter are an active thing. Can you kill somebody and be charged with vehicular homicide when you were a mile away? Don't you actually have to hit the person? I mean, doesn't your vehicle yeah. actually have to be involved? I mean, to me, that seems like that would be the the cornerstone of the charge, of the law. This sounds like a really, really bad precedent to start, you know? Well, and and maybe I'm just ignorant of the, the actual law itself. Maybe the, the term vehicular homicide, vehicular manslaughter, for us it's charged, and it sounds like it's a thing that you have to do knowingly, willingly. Yeah, I don't know the law, but it, it just seems to me like your vehicle would have to be involved. Right, and and when I was Actively, reading... Actively, not passively. Well, the the reason why there are these, these terms aggravated, essentially, attached to them, I'm reading, at least in the, in the Syracuse Post Standard, they're saying that you have to willingly and knowingly disregard the fact that someone's chasing you or disregard the fact that that someone might get hurt. If you do something because of negligence, then it's negligent homicide or negligent manslaughter or that kind of thing. But it's an aggravated account if you're aware of the circumstances and you choose to disregard it. Yeah, well, and then that gets to the whether or not he knew he was being chased. But actually, this topic came up at work the other day because 
in our break room, we unfortunately have a television, and it's either on MTV watching Road Rules Challenge or <laughs> or the latest edition Quality of programming. Real World, or it's on World's Most Extreme Police Chases. So we were actually talking about this the other day, and many police departments around the country right now, just the, their policy is not to get involved in a high-speed chase. Because, A, the guy you're chasing isn't Mario Andretti. He doesn't know how to drive. And while these cops have, I'm sorry, these police officers, have some training in high-speed circumstances, these guys aren't Mario Andretti either. And they're going to do something that's going to cause an accident and endanger innocent people as well. In this case, uh, he endangered himself, and and unfortunately, his, his life was lost, but... So many police departments are just not getting involved in high-speed chases. Seems like a good policy. You know, if there's helicopters or whatever, they can follow them. The guy's going to run out of gas eventually, or he's going to crash, you know? Yeah, and I'm not even sure if... I mean, this is not necessarily a huge community. We don't have the freeway system, so a helicopter chase might not have even been worth it. By the time the copter was in the air, the guy probably was in a garage. But the simple math says that if you have two vehicles going at an incredibly high rate of speed... The odds are twice as likely that an accident's going to happen, in, potentially involving innocent people. So that math tells me high-speed chase is bad. Well, and the other issue that I'm a little bit concerned about is there might be high-speed chases, and there might be a, a case where you necessarily have to have a high-speed chase. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of them, but what I'm thinking is if you're a state trooper and that day you're issued an SUV, that should disqualify you from even participating in a high-speed chase. Yeah, aren't these the vehicles that roll over when you look at them and things like that? They're just not stable vehicles. I mean, some of our uh, New York State troopers on the interstate, on Interstate 90, on the thruway, they're actually driving like Mustangs and stuff now, which is a little yeah, bit better I handling saw car. Camaro. Yeah, Camaros and Mustangs, I've seen both. And if you got a guy who knows how to drive back there, you know, that is a car that's going to win in a high-speed chase, depending on what he's chasing. You know, it's a little bit more... Uh, engineered a little bit more for handling an mm-hmm. SUV? No, definitely not. Well, and then think about the circumstances here. You've got SUV versus motorcycle. Yeah, and a motorcycle a chance, is yeah. is probably the most maneuverable vehicle on the road. It can accelerate and decelerate very quickly. Well, its power to weight ratio exceeds yeah. anything on right. the roads. So, yeah, I just think that that there should be some policy changes as well as just charges against this guy. I don't think it should be this guy gets pin to the wall, put him in jail, and then everything goes on as if nothing happened other than, you know, a law officer lost his life. There should be some serious policy reviews. That's And all. there probably will be because, you know, when this happens, there there sometimes is. And, uh, you know, as I said before, many police departments around the world have instituted this policy. Certainly our police departments must be aware that these other departments have instituted these changes. So maybe we'll all... Uh, grow and learn from this. Yeah, and and my final disclaimer on this is in no way am I discounting the fact that this guy was doing wrong. I mean, I'm no, I'm not excusing not. anything that this guy did no, to 100 miles an hour to even well aggravate the uh, the whole incident, but there you go. So, any good news on your side? I rode 37 miles on my bike yesterday. It was a beautiful day. It's even nicer day today at 100 miles an hour. Um my average speed was like 7 or something it was a lot of hills and it was it was a good ride but what was your cadence i am i have fast twitch muscles in my legs i like to turn over at high pedal rates i really do i'm a spinner as they say in cycling yeah it's uh, becoming vogue now well but me it's just natural i like to spin i like a lot of turnover with my legs which is why I never really like to climb, but you know you go a little slower in those hills well giant people like you don't climb well Mm. 
Yeah, I'm like 6'3". Most climbers are a little, uh, a little shorter than me, often anyway. I'm carrying around a lot of weight, too, compared to those guys. And they're usually bald and on some sort of methamphetamine. <laughs> John is referring to Marco Pantani, <laughs> yes. one of the greatest climbers ever. Uh, one-time Tour de France winner, but he was jacked up on roids when he yeah, won that one. Yeah. So we have to kind of you know look at that one a, Another a tragic case where this guy is an amazing athlete, and he just basically burned his life away on drugs. He... um. What, do you know what his nickname was? I'm struggling. I it was know. the pirate, and he yeah, gave, right. he gave it to that's himself. Right. You know, sort of. So just jokingly with uh, my friend Todd, who listens to our program, he's a cyclist too. I told him I wanted to be called. Uh, what was it? The swashbuckler or something? <laughs> that was going to be my cycling name, or no, the buccaneer. That <laughs> the was buccaneer. it. You have to call me the buccaneer from now on. Whenever you address an email to me. Hey, speaking of cycling, what's this green monstrosity behind me? Well, it's sort of green. It's greenish. A, it's 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 a seafoam green called Celeste Green. That's right. It's uh, it's my bike. I pulled it out of the closet. <laughs> That's rich. Pouring wine into a glass. You know what? We should talk about this wine because it's a good thing. The, the, hey, 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 hey! Don't avoid the cycling subject here. <laughs> That's my bike. I pulled it out of the closet. His bike came that. out of the closet last week, and yeah. um, it's a cool bike. It's a Bianchi. Yep, it's, it's got a, it's some a good Bianchi. parts on it and everything. What what what, what model is that? That's the uh, super leggera. What, is it, what does that mean? It means super light. Okay, but it's uh, it's a circa eighty seven, and back then it was super light. But right now, with carbon fiber and titanium and all that, my bike is one of the heavier things on the road. <laughs> so I'm trying to convince John into riding it every once in a while with me. I brought him over new water bottle cages today and everything. Well, they were old water bottle cages, but they are well worn and uh, troopers. <laughs> Yeah, it's my nice. My bike is a nice uh, Italian handmade thing, but um, I'm having trouble getting on it again. It's been a while. Once it I do it, just needs to tune up. We'll get him on it. Yeah. So the wine. This is. I never talk about the wine. Actually, you should. I'm going to talk about it because it was mailed to me. Our good friend Martin down under in Australia had promised to send us a bottle. And he did. He he shipped it around February 8th. It arrived last Tuesday, I think, or a couple Tuesdays ago. I don't remember now. But it took about 10 weeks to get here. He sent it by sea mail, and it took a while. So it aged. It aged got some a postal more. aging on it? Yeah, it aged due to its trip, which is fine. You know, we know that the airmail uh, freight would have been a lot of money, so it's cool that he sent it. This is a Morilla, M-O-O-R-I-L-L-A, um, Due to my Spanish, uh, uh, recent schooling in Spanish, I want to say Moria, <laughs> but I don't know which is correct. It's probably not that way. This is a 2003 Black Label Pinot Noir. It's very good. I'm digging it. Yeah, I think it's smashing. Thank you. I, I mean, I love getting gifts, even if they're awful gifts, but this is a good one. No, this is a great <laughs> gift. I was so excited. When he sent said he sent it the slow way, you know, that was fine. It's cool. But I thought to myself, this will actually be really cool because I will have forgotten it's coming and then it'll appear <laughs> and it'll be like a, like a super cool surprise. And that was a really, 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 um, that was a really great day because in addition to that coming, the new Gentle Giant DVD release called Gentle Giant at the GG, GG at the GG just came out and I got that. And that's really cool. That's a BBC recording from 1978. Oh, we'll talk about that a little bit on the next show. I'll go down the uh, song lineup and all that. It's really cool. But anyway. And I'm going to lament again that we can't play that kind of stuff on our show. I am negotiating with them, actually. Well, keep twisting. I'm I'm working on it. But speaking of music, we got a tune. This is 
uh, an artist by the name of John Hudson. It's a local guy. We've played one of his songs before. <laughs> I won't tell you why I laughed. But yeah, we played one of John's tunes before. And this one's kind of cool. It's got a neat vibe. Tell me if you recognize the uh, the vibe. And this is called Better Than Yourself. <laughs>
cool. It's lovely. It's lovely. <laughs> it uh, it has a little bit of a Beatles vibe going on there, don't you think? A little Harrison-esque sort of chord-based guitar solo. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me that uh, there was a famous interview with uh, the Beatles having just gotten here, I think. I think it was like on their initial invasion. And uh, they had been here a few weeks and the press asked Mr. Lennon... How do you find America? You know, what do you think of America? And he said, oh, we didn't left at Greenland. <laughs> That's how you find America, apparently. He was very witty. He was a great guy, that Mr. Lennon. Funny guy. He was a fun guy. <laughs> yes, he was. So, you know, I get this, uh, I get a variety of magazines in the in the mail, and, like, they're all free, which is really cool, because I work at this music industry manufacturer. We get all these, like, free subscription cards and stuff. Oh, this one you didn't steal? <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't actually steal this one, like that other magazine that's on your your workbench but uh this is electronic musician and it's the may 2006 issue and i i expect the kind of articles that i normally see here on the cover like mics of many colors seven large diaphragm multi-pattern condensers compared blah 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 yeah titillating even yeah exactly avoiding disaster data backup strategies (laughs) next on hard hitting uh and you would expect that too we live in a digital world now you know digital doesn't exist twice it doesn't exist we live in an analog world, my friend. Well, I do. But, you know, there's a lot of these home studio wankers. I mean, a lot of these home studio guys with uh, all this digital crap. I mean, digital stuff. But uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm thumbing through the magazine here. You can hear Literally. me thumbing right now. And I see this article that just seems a little bit more well-placed in, I don't know, Popular Mechanics, <laughs> Discover, Popular Science, Scientific American, Siam, you know, and it's uh, called Catching the Sun. Nanotechnology brings solar cells down to Earth. And apparently they're working on this new sort of solar cell technology at the Pennsylvania State University, PSU.edu. And it's a, a, well, it's a new kind of technology. It's not silicon-based like most of the uh, solar technology is now. It's almost like an electroplating process. They put some sort of backplate with a chemical coating on it in an acid bath. And it's like a titanium dioxide bath. And you apply a little electrical current. And then these little titanium dioxide tubes grow. And then when you coat that with a, a photosensitive dye, you get the the uh, difference of potential. It becomes a solar cell. And they're still in the R&D stages because right now they can't grow the the titanium dioxide nanotubes terribly long. They only grow them about 360 nanometers right now. And that yields a solar cell with an efficiency of about 3%. But of course, they're going to obviously put a lot of R&D into this. And that's going to hopefully get an order of magnitude uh, more in the length of the nanotubes, and that they suspect will yield a solar cell that has a fifteen percent conversion rate. And while that isn't isn't as quite as good as the silicon's twenty one percent efficiency, that's still pretty darn good. Well, yeah, for a first generation technology, it's very good. Yeah. Well, what's even better about this though is the amount of energy it takes to actually manufacture these things. And we've talked about this before in in the area of electric cars and 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 things like that. But a silicon solar cell requires a huge amount of electricity to energy to produce. And I don't actually have those numbers in front of me, but the number, the amount of energy required to make one solar panel of a particular size is so great that it will never in its typical lifetime produce that much electricity as an electricity producing thing. That's why they haven't, well, that's one of the big reasons why they haven't taken off and people have been not been powering their homes with them. The other reason is 
you have these giant big black things on your house. They're a little unsightly for some people, and they just don't like to do that to their yeah. nice little colonials. Well, and these would require having more of those for the same amount of energy since the conversion rate is lower. But for the right. people who don't mind the gigantic black panels on their house, what's great about this new technology is that it requires about 100 times less energy to make the solar cells. And to me, that sounds like fantastic. Mm-hmm. Definitely should pursue this a little bit more. And hopefully we'll see some uh, some fruits of that R&D in the future. And as I said, this is in the May 2006 issue of Electronic Musician. And who knows, maybe there's some uh, some really cool stuff on the PSU uh, website. you got to wonder why they put it in that magazine. It seems a little out of place in here. I, If I had to guess, I would say some of the editorial guys are green. You know, some of the guys on this page are green. Well, you know, it's funny. They tried to segue into it as if it really belonged in this kind of magazine. <laughs> Um, no matter what type of technology they use, all electronic musicians depend on one thing, electric power. So, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. a horrible segue. Yeah. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to, you know, segue into it smoothly to pretend that belongs in this kind of magazine. But, um, you know, I think it's great. I mean, yes, they're not high current drawing devices, typically things like synthesizers and, you know, guitar amps draw a little bit more since they have those fire breathing vacuum tubes in there, but <laughs> Um, and then they actually, I'm, I'm guessing it is because some of the editorial staff is, is green because they talk about how most power comes from burning fossil fuels and nuclear energy. And then he segues into the whole solar cell thing. So oh, cool. it's not necessarily entirely appropriate in this magazine, but hey, it made for some good reading. No, it's, it's very cool stuff, especially now that nanotechnology is, is not so much sci-fi. Um, it's becoming real. I mean, there are a lot of people who are starting to latch on to the whole term nano, maybe inappropriately. I mean, I think I've seen some, some I've seen makeups some... And, or cosmetics that are saying that they've got nanotechnology in them. I've seen you walking around with a device stuck to your ears that has the word nano in it. That's too. right. And, and coincidentally, when you name your, your iPod, I've got an iPod nano. This is not an advertisement. It's just it's germane to the conversation. Um, you name your iPod, and I called mine nanotube. So anytime you plug it in, it says nanotube. Are they titan? Is it titanium dioxide nanotube? Yeah, and when you plug it in, it actually makes my computer run faster, <laughs> more power. And when the sun goes down, it just shuts off. That's right. Talk about bit talking about bad segues. This is kind of uh, uh, not entirely uh, clean segue, but this reminded me of something I read on Tom Payne. Is it TomPayne.org or TomPayne.com? It's sort of a... Uh, yeah, I think it's an org. It's we'll, a we'll progressive, it it's a progressive uh, politics website. And they, had, they highlighted an editorial that they had seen in the uh, Times-Picayune newspaper, which I believe is in New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans. And we all know about New Orleans because they know how to throw parties down there. And there's a lot of cool, uh, a lot of cool music comes from there. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting about this editorial is that this editorial called for lowering greenhouse gas emissions and it basically it was critical of the Bush administration for ignoring and denying greenhouse gas emissions because they of course think it doesn't exist and the reason they think that is because they're in bed with big oil. And what's particularly interesting about this Gulf of Mexico uh newspaper printing this is that a huge part of the economy of that region is based on oil. And the refineries down there and offshore oil rigs and that kind of thing. So, And what happened that made it different was Hurricane Katrina. This newspaper realized that rising waters are bad. 
okay, maybe some huge mega profits from oil in the short term is a good thing, but if the region really wants to survive, it can't handle more hurricanes like that. And while they're not necessarily linking um, global warming to stronger hurricanes, although there's some people are, just the fact that the hurricane hit that region made them realize that regardless of where the storm is coming from or why, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad for our economy. People die and, you know, it's much better to have something than nothing, I well, guess. Here's where I'm going to interrupt you. and Go pick ahead, mister. And I'm going to pick nits. I wouldn't say that it's bad. What? Rising waters are not in and of themselves bad. These aren't evil things floating around saying we're going to flood people and we're going to do damage and hurt people. I think what's bad is is the fact that we're not prepared and we're not dealing with the, with these facts. And, well, and we're if, just ignoring them and hoping that they'll go away. No, I'm going to disagree with you here, though. Rising waters are bad. If the average temperature of our biosphere is increasing and more ice is melting, waters are going to rise and coastline is going to go away. And that, to me, is bad. To me, that's a change, and I don't think it has a, a bad or good qualifier. The, the, the globe is constantly changing. I think it if it were a normal part of evolution, I would agree, but it's not. This is something that's man-made, and I, I definitely don't agree with that. I, I have a friend who believes that just because we had a part in it, it is a natural part of evolution, but I would, uh, I would disagree with him. I'm not going to name names, but well, it's, it's not John it's not that I'm talking about. Well, and, and this is where, where I might split with you slightly on this. I think that, that what humans are doing is contributing to whatever changes are taking place on this planet. And I think that if these changes are doing damage and eroding things and, and getting rid of some of the things that we enjoy or that, that are positive on the planet, I think that we should take ownership of that. I think that, however, some people are a little bit arrogant and they, they tend to believe that because human beings can have an effect that human beings are somewhat responsible for all effects. I think that that we're a contributing factor, but I don't think that we're the largest contributing factor to the changes in the environment. I'm not. I'm not an apologist saying that. You know, no, there's no such thing as global warming, and and uh, you know that whole argument where it's just a it's a conspiracy of the left to try to you know keep them keep the populace down or keep us in fear. I don't buy that, but I I'm not sure that we have enough information to say that we're the, the primary cause of global warming. Oh, I think we're way past that. I think any credible study, i.e. one not funded by big oil, shows that temperatures have risen dramatically in but the last... there's a difference between correlation and causality. Yes. And, and I'm saying that some of the things that we are responsible for may be a contributing factor, but it may be that we're just we're nudging in the same direction that the, the globe was going anyways. I don't think that, that we have enough information to say that. I don't think we have enough information to say that if we weren't doing putting out the same kind of uh, particulate matter in the atmosphere that uh, there would be the, any difference of an effect. Well, just in general, wouldn't you agree that it's, since we can, we have identified greenhouse gases that can lead mm -hmm. to this, this thing called the greenhouse effect. Just in general, don't you think to be on the safe side, it's better to emit less greenhouse gas than more. Oh, I'm, I'm completely on that side, and I think okay. we've even had that argument before, where we said, you know, yeah, well, because, we tend to talk about this kind of stuff a lot because because the you know we don't necessarily know exactly what the effects are. We're thinking rational human creatures on this planet. We can make decisions. We're not like 
you know, cows who are emitting uh, gases, we're we're able to make decisions and, and curb our behavior if we see something that's that's not necessarily positive. Actually, I yeah. think that we should take responsibility and try to curb some of the negative things that we're doing as much as possible. We should be emitting fewer particulate matters into the, the atmosphere if we can. Then you need to eat less broccoli. Now I need to eat less broccoli. I actually need to eat more. I haven't had the that cow much that argument is actually interesting because of the amount of uh, methane they release. Yep. And and we wouldn't be we wouldn't have as many cows on this planet if there weren't as many meat eaters as there are. So there it's actually true. is a credible argument to make against the meat industry in a uh, global warming sense. Another thing that I find interesting from the whole global warming aspect is this. Let's assume for the moment that the biosphere of the Earth is increasing in temperature. Even if we weren't causing ice to melt, which is naturally going to make waters rise, even if that wasn't a factor, let's say the, the temperature, the mean temperature of the Earth can actually go up and not melt ice at the poles. The waters are still going to rise just because as the water in the ocean gets heated, it expands. So rising of temperature on the Earth causes a double whammy because in addition to the volume of the water becoming greater due to temperature, we are melting more ice at the caps. So it's sort of like a double whammy that a lot of people don't even think about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and again, that's one of those things that I was saying that it's an effect. It's a it's something that's happening. It, it's not necessarily tied directly to what every human being is doing on this planet with their vehicles. I'm just saying that, sure, the science says that some of these things are happening, but we don't know every single variable that's that's causing it. Well, happen. you can't track every single variable. There's just too many. Well, right. But I think it's pretty safe to say that fossil fuels and greenhouse gases are a major contributor. Well, I what I say is, you know, if we if we can do things that are a little bit safer, if we can do things that that reduce our emissions, then we should do so. And if if the case is that nothing is happening, if if we don't start to reverse some of these trends, then we deal with the fact that these trends are happening, and if they're affecting us and, and causing some damage, then we should see what we can do to, to stop those. It doesn't mean that we should stop them because we suspect, or some people suspect that it may not be a problem. I think we also know that this administration is just burying its head in the sand. About well, yeah, I mean, there's one thing to be skeptical of some claims or one thing to be cautious about some claims on either side. It's one thing to do that. It's a Completely different story for just ignoring everything and continuing on the status quo. <laughs> Ignorance and denial. And it's, of course, it's only because George is big oil. Well, yeah, I, th I think that there is definitely some of, some of that influencing him. You know, Just a tiny bit. And I also think that there's some personality problems there, too. I mean, stay the course has always been you know, the motto. And no matter what it is, it's stay the course. And for some people, they think that that's a sign of strength. And I, I think it's a sign of ignorance. And weakness, yeah. You have to be able to adapt to change. Yeah, admit your mistakes and then And that's something them. that this administration never does. Yeah, well, it's they hard for, never admit their mistakes. It's hard for any human being to do that, but if oh, you're responsible absolutely. for uh, 300 million uh, citizens. Or if you're a reasonable adult, yeah. you admit your mistakes. And you adapt, overcome, and move on. Yeah, and I'm still not getting on the bike. None of this, <laughs> this is making me get on that bike right now. <laughs> You know, it's a cool bike, and it's, it's got blue beautiful. lettering and a blue seat. Yeah, it's a beautiful bike. It's one of those things where you go to the store and say, I, I want this bike in, in uh, green, and they look at you sideways. They say, no, it only comes in one color. It's, it's Celeste. That's right. Yeah, that's Bianchi's signature color, by the way. It's Celeste green. Yeah, it's like going to buy a Ferrari and say, I want it in purple. They'll slap you. 
Well, well, you can get it in yellow, you can get them in white, or you can get it in the signature pink. <laughs> the uh, the that's clay right, Ferrari pink. <laughs> that's very famous. You see it on a lot of fire trucks, too. Yeah. Anyway, we got another tune, I think. And we're going back to the Reservoir. We're going back to one of my favorite bands. My favorite band, actually, to ever come out of Central New York, Red Herring. We've played them like twice before, so we're cutting them off. This is the last one. Oh, it's good stuff, though. Well, there's a couple more strong songs. We'll get to them eventually. And again, since I don't have the song list, this one is uh, song number eight from their eponymous self-titled non-released debut. Anyway, let's check it out. That song, they were they wanted it to feel like a machine, you know? They were going for, like, this mechanized, gigantic machine vibe, and I think they really captured it. Yeah, I think Ministry does uh, the whole industrial machine kind of thing a little bit better, but these guys are a little bit more musical. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And for me, if music isn't musical, it's not music. <laughs> That's right. You've got a point. Well, I, I know that sounds very literal and, and very obvious, but there are people who do things that aren't musical. Like, I'm not a big fan of rap or hip-hop. It tends to be rhythm and maybe a little melody, but not a lot of harmony. And the last time I looked in Webster's Dictionary, it defined music as rhythm, melody, and harmony. So if it's lacking one, to me, it's just 
not music. Anyway, and there you have it. And there you have it. Rich's mantra on music. So I saw another film, as I always do on Fridays at the MWB.org. And this was a cool film, and I'm sure you've heard of this one. Mrs. Henderson Presents. You heard of that one? Yes, I have. Judy Dench is in it. Bob Hoskins, he's always great. Well, so is she. Dame Judy Dench. Dame Judy Dench. Is that sort of like when a woman is knighted, sort of like the Sir Paul McCartney, Dame Judy Dench? Is I that... think Dame is the female equivalent to Duke. Oh, is it? I okay. think so. All right. I, I don't even know the answer to that. If any of you out there in the UK know the answer to that, drop us an email. It's yeah. uh, feedback at bloodyveg.com. And uh, a, a pleasant surprise in this film was Christopher Guest of uh, Spinal <laughs> Tap fame and, and The Princess Bride and all of those great things. He plays Lord Cromer, who is kind of the the lord of mm, censorship or something like that. He's the guy that anytime there's a production in England uh, on the stage, it has to meet his approval before he'll let it happen. Anyway, this is a story about this woman, Laura Henderson, whose husband had just died and they had all this old money and all kind oodles and oodles of money. And she was bored. She didn't know what to do. So she decided to revitalize the West End of London. I think it was. I don't quite remember what what West, North, South, East. I don't know. But she had found an old theater, and she just decided to buy it. She, I'm going to start mounting productions at this theater. How cool is that? So she had all this money. She bought the theater. She started pouring money into it as, uh, to renovate it. And then she hired uh, Vivian Van Dam, played by Bob Hoskins, who's always great. Great little sort of character actor. He reminds mm-hmm. me of Pauly from Rocky. You know, if you got him and Ned Beatty together, they could, you know, they're similar sorts of character actors. You know what I mean? I think some of his best work was with a rabbit. Uh, yeah, that's what he's most famous for. So they want to start mounting productions, and she hires the Bob Hoskins, Vivian Van Dam character to manage the theater. He had been a theater manager in the past, and they want to do sort of like a vaudeville kind of thing. That was what they decided on. So they called it something like Revue de Ville or something. And their hook was going to be, because this theater had already failed once, their hook was going to be like vaudeville. They were going to be showing shows all day. You know, you could go at any time and see a show. And that had never been done in London before, apparently. So they were a smashing success. Oh, and by the way, this takes place just pre to World War II and during World War II, just Mm -hmm. to give you an idea of the, uh, the time frame. So their Revue de Ville was a, a smashing success. And then crowds started to uh, dwindle to some degree. Or to quote the guy in Spinal Tap, no, 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 no. Their, their appeal is becoming more selective. But, um, <laughs> that was the reason why Spinal Tap's crowds were going down. <laughs> but anyway, um, the reason their crowd started to dwindle is because every other theater in London had picked up on the running shows all day thing. So they had started to take from their audience. So then the Laura Henderson uh, woman character, Judy Dench's character, says, well, let's have naked women on stage. <laughs> and it's always a good way to liven up a show. I'm all for it. And, you know, the Vivian Van Damme character, the Bob Hoskins character was like, that just isn't done in London. And he was a bit uh, shocked that she would suggest it, a prim and proper old money woman like she was. And this is where Lord Cromer, the Christopher Guest character, comes into play. Because, again, any stage production that is staged in London has to meet his approval or else it can't go on. So she butters him up. You know, she invites him over for dinner and actually not quite exactly like inviting him over for dinner. She stages a situation where they're on a walk and suddenly there's this tent that they discover and it's got all sorts of fine wines and cheeses in there and she staged it all. So she starts buttering him up with all this fine food. Which just happened upon this Yeah, they just tent. happened upon this tent in the middle of a park with, you know, lots of fine uh, gourmet foods and drinks. So she pitches him the idea of wanting to have naked women on stage. And this is like old school, prim and proper 
you know, this guy, this Lord Cromer is just, you know, staunch guy. And he's a little bit aghast at the idea of naked women on stage. So the Laura Henderson character suggests that, well, how is this different than any museum in the world? There's nude women in every fine art museum in the world. And he goes, well, they're motionless. They're paintings or statues. And she goes, and a light went off. And she she suggested, well, we could do that. We could just have the naked women as scenery, <laughs> not moving in the background. And ultimately, this worked. I don't know how much of this tale is apocryphal and how much isn't. I do know that this woman owned a theater and did put naked women on stage. To what extent the circumstances surrounding how she was allowed to do what happened, I don't know. But certainly, this this is a very uh, a very pleasant tale. The way they wove <laughs> this tale together. So anyway, he ultimately signs off on allowing them to do it. So they staged rather uh, elaborate musicals, and in the background, they would have fairly nude women holding things and being quite statuesque. And, and that was how they pulled it off. And then the film gets into the whole World War II aspect, all of the uh, the bombings over London and and uh, all the V2s and V1 buzz bombs that were coming in. And laws were passed, for example, that uh, kept people from congregating because if a bomb goes right. off in a congregation, more people are likely to die. And they were thinking about shutting down this theater, and she talked Lord Cromer into letting the theater stay live. And, I mean, there's a lot of other things going on in this film. Her reasons, her professed reason for actually wanting to add the nudity to the production was not just to get people back into the seats, but for another reason that gets a little bit more into her character and her character's development. She liked naked women. I don't think so. Oh, okay. I think she liked. A wild guess? I think she liked naked men, actually. Oh. But I'm not going to go into those details just because I don't want to give away everything. But anyway, this is uh, directed by Stephen Frears, 2005 UK film, uh, rated R. Uh, well, they, there is some language in there, and there is some nudity in there. <laughs> by definition, <laughs> I didn't mind either. And it's 103 minutes, and I would definitely give it a thumb <laughs> up. I would definitely give it a thumb up. And uh, I would definitely recommend it. And just like the world's fastest Indian film, films with actor, actors or actresses like Judy Dench tend to – the typical Munson Williams crowd is there, but there's always a lot more just because pretty much anything Judy Dench is, is in is going to be good just because she's so strong. You know? Yeah, well, she's she's made a name for herself, I think. <laughs> she's quite good. The, the, the fun, thing that I found a little unnerving was Christopher Guest as Lord Cromer. Because he was doing his British accent, and he knows how to do two or possibly more British accents. But we know the Cockney British accent that he did as Nigel Tufnell in Spinal Tap. And right. we know the more prim and proper one that he does as the six-fingered man, Count Rugen, in The <laughs> Princess Bride. So he was using the prim and proper sort of Count Rugen-esque accent. So did he have every, another finger? <laughs> no, he didn't have any more fingers, or uh, Chris Sarandon wasn't in this either. Yeah. But every time he spoke, I heard, you know, the... Uh, the Count Rugen character, you know, because I've seen The Princess Bride so many times, dozens of times over the years. You know, it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, and he slightly plays him as uh, a little bit, I don't know, effeminate too. A little bit, yeah, yeah. he does. And But I think there was something to that sort of prim and proper British thing, a little bit of ponciness, you know, a little bit of that. But that's okay, you know, who cares? No, I wasn't making any judgments. <laughs> I was just saying that... You were, weren't you? That nah, w- you in were. The Princess Bride, he played him in a little bit uh, effeminate way and... And yeah, he, he had six fingers. I don't and know what was, that means. He was a great character. I am a big fan of Chris Guest. I think he's a super talented writer, comedic writer, and actor. And I love all of his films. You know, Best in Show and uh, his character in Best in Show. I just cry hysterically when I see him talking the guy about with the, the hound, hound dog. dog. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> he, he, those guys are all super talented, Michael McKean and Chris Guest. And so anytime I get to see, you know, one of my favorite actors like those guys on screen, it's always a thrill cuz because he's a bit typecast as mm-hmm. sort of the comedy guy, he usually doesn't get roles in uh, films that have people like Judy Dench in them. So it was really nice seeing Chris Guest in a in a, a name film like this with some really really major talent. Yeah, his wife is some no-name actress, I think. What what's her name? Jamie Lee Curtis? Yeah, her. Yeah, yeah I've which, heard of her. Has she ever done anything? No. She hasn't done anything in a while. Well, yeah, she was in... Uh, she was in uh, Psycho, wasn't Halloween. she? Halloween. Halloween, right? Oh, no, her mother was in Psycho. Sorry. Yeah, she was in Halloween, and well, like, maybe her biggest yeah, film role joking. was that Schwarzenegger film. Um, True Lies. True Lies. Yeah, that might have been her biggest on-screen presence. Yeah, she's Or, or Trading she's Places. Famous. She had quite a presence in Trading Places <laughs> in, in some ways. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I don't know. I think that's a show. That is a show. So anyway... Oh, man, it's the Klingons. I mean, the Klaxons. Klingons, Klaxons, whatever. It's all the same. But you've been listening to Bloodthirsty Vegetarians on BBC Two. All two of them. <laughs> That's right. So if you want to like leave us some annoying hate mail, by all means do. It's... No, don't. No. Okay. Retract. But I'm going to tell you the address anyway. It's, it's feedback at bloodyveg.com. Check out our blog and website, www.bloodyveg.com. Occasionally we put some funny stuff up there other than our shows. Haven't done that in a while. In fact, I was thinking about that. Might need to hit the blog with some, some more stuff. Yeah. And if you want to send us some fine wines, email yeah. us and we'll send you an address to send it to. Thanks again. Thanks, Martin. You're the bomb. And remember, you're listening to V.I.B. V.I.B.